If you have your Bible with you, I hope you do, please join me in the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to have to find it myself because I stuck my notes in the wrong spot. Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. And you need to go all the way to where you see Song of Solomon because we're on the last chapter today. And we've got one more installment after this. We'll finish next week and bring our summer series to a conclusion. We'll be back in the book of Acts on the first week of September. I looked the other day just out of curiosity. Would you believe it's just 17 weeks till Christmas? As hot as it's been over the last several weeks, we're that close to Christmas. Well, let me begin reading for you. This is the seventh verse of chapter 11, and we'll read through the eighth verse of chapter 12. A lot of the commentators believe this is meant to be one unit, although there is a chapter break in our English Bibles. But verse 7 simply says, Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all. But let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. Remove vexation from your heart. Put away pain from your body for youth and the dawn of life are vanity, which also means brief. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Remember also your creator, the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, from which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened and the clouds return after the rain. And the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men are bent. The grinders cease because there are few. Those who look through the windows are dimmed. The doors on the street are shut. When the sound of the grinding is low and one rises up at the sound of a bird. And the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms. The grasshopper drags itself along. Desire fails because man is going to his eternal home and mourners go about the streets. Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern and the dust returns to the earth as it was and the spirit returns to God who gave it. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, all is vanity. This is God's word. And let's us bow in prayer. Father in heaven, Lord, we thank you for this one installment from the end. We thank you for Ecclesiastes and our summer walking together through it. Lord, we ask that you will be, as you always are, the master teacher. But Lord, open our ears, our eyes, our thinking, our heart. And Lord, let us understand these things. And then may they change our lives. Give us an extra measure of maturity 
for this installment. And Lord, we ask this in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Well, this uh, message here has really to do with time. Time's a fascinating subject. Either you like movies that talk about time. Time travel usually makes for good stories. We typically rule our lives by the watch on our, on our wrist. Certain parts of the world, it's not quite the same. I've, I've traveled a little in my life. And noticed that in certain places like the Caribbean, nothing starts on time. Um, and then in response to getting uptight about that, you're told, don't worry, be happy. <laughs> I wish it were that way here, but time seems to measure it all. And we know from our scriptures that God invented that. He put that constraint, time constraint, on this world when he made it at the point we call the beginning or in the beginning. But as far as time goes and our own existence, we measure that in age, don't we? And usually we don't worry about that until a certain age, and then we obsess over it. And then we kind of give up on it a little later down the road. And I think a certain amount of maturity and, and, and caution are, are warranted for a message like this too because we're going to find it's addressed to youth, but it speaks of, of the aged. And uh, humility is knowing your, 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 your place and knowing what's appropriate and what's not appropriate. I've listened to pastors joke their way through that last part, which is not a joke when it's your turn. Um, and then I also understand that there was a point in my life where none of these things ever dawned on me. I didn't think about them. I do now because I'm kind of precariously positioned between not being young and not being old. It's called middle age. Happens to everyone if they live a long time. So it's about time, it's about age, it's about humility. But so far, Ecclesiastes has spent much of its time contemplating the gifts of God under the sun over against life's inevitable end, which is death. He spent a lot of time talking about the things he learned under the sun, but how that all of it is short. It's like a breath. And then there's the other side of that vanity, which is kind of meaningless. It doesn't add up to anything. And if you put all your eggs in those baskets, when your time comes, you'll have looked at your life as a waste. He's doubling down on that in this last portion. Because what's left for next week is really the, the narrator's final words. This is how Solomon, the preacher, Koheleth, however you want to refer to him, ends his, his, his work. This is his... His, uh, his last statement. So, throughout the book, death seems to have been tagged onto the end of each episode and each lesson for the purpose of sorting out foolishness and wisdom. Foolishness in seeking these things under the sun is gain, trying to acquire or amass these things, which is silly because we've got to give them up when we go. We can't take them with us. And then the wisdom of enjoying the things in life as they were meant to be enjoyed as gifts from the God who gave them to us. Because God meant his gifts to point us back to himself. Here, however, Solomon describes our end 
in detail. Up till now, he's warning of a coming end. Now he explains what it's going to look like. I read a lot, more so than I'd, I have in messages past in this series, only to make sure we're careful as we walk through this. But growing old, and even that's tough to say, because when I was a kid, pastor's kid, making visits with dad, he would always correct my speech if I used the word old and person connected together. They're older people. They're not old people. You'll be old one day, and you won't like that. I know you don't like being called a young person, but there's some people who don't like being called old. So you do that with caution. But growing old makes one's body and one's mind part company. How so? Well, because the body and the mind age differently. There's, there's what you see in the mirror, that face, You've grown accustomed to looking at every day of your life, but the mind inside that face ages different. The face will look older before the mind feels it. There's a disconnect between those things. The disconnect intensifies as time passes, such that denial is likely when our bodies begin to do with difficulty what they used to do with ease. This is when you hear people start talking about aches and pains, so on and so forth. Rather than living in the valley of the shadow of death, this book we've been studying, Ecclesiastes, hasn't been teaching us that death is an evil, but rather that death should be a teacher and should help us with our living. If you, if you live your life backward, you'll live it correctly, not looking as the beginning is the best and it just wears out toward the end, but the end is the best. So start out and live with purpose. Oddly enough, this section, the end of chapter 11 through the beginning of chapter 12, is addressed to the young person, which is kind of silly because that's specifically the audience that knows no capacity for understanding any of it. Right? Youth is wasted on the young, we say. So, what do they know? How can they know anything about any of this stuff? mentioned at the end. There's going to be an exorbitant amount of trust given to older folks by this young audience in order to at least catch a glimpse of what this wise old man at this point has to say. So let's, let's look at a rough outline for organizing the material um, up front here at the beginning, and then we'll pace ourselves through it and identify these pieces as we go. There are two commands, and then there are two warnings right on their heels. Uh, the first command is found in chapter 11, verse 9. We read it already. Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you all the days of your youth. That's the first half. And then the warning is right there in, in 11, 9b. You don't have A's and B's and C's in your translations. But if you go to Awana and learn verses that are too big to memorize in one chunk, they break them up and call the first part A, the second part B, and if there's a third part, it's C. So I don't mean to confuse anybody by that, but the warning's right there. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment, which means you're going to be judged for how you live that life in your youth. 
Command number two is the first verse in chapter 12. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth. So rejoice because your youth. Remember your creator while you're a youth. And then the warning is in 12.1b. Before the evil days come and the years draw near, which means there's an expiration date approaching. You'll run out of time if you don't get busy. So there's a relationship between these two commands and these two warnings in pairs. The dominant command is to rejoice. That comes first, which means enjoy the good gifts that God, your Creator, gives you. But the command to remember your Creator seems to have everything to do with our capacity to enjoy the gifts that He's given. It's pretty straightforward. Try it on. If you forget your Creator, then you'll forget where the gifts came from. If you forget your creator, you might actually think that those gifts that he gave you that you've forgotten about were of your own doing. You might try to stack them up, make a name for yourself, only to give it all back when you die and your life has been a waste. So if you'll remember your creator, there's something special there that we'll learn here in a few moments is a very powerful orientating device to make your perspectives clear. So you would think, I wrote this down just because it dawned on me at the end of what was just said, of all the people on the planet, don't you think that you're probably best qualified to know what you would enjoy? I mean, how many of you go seek out someone else and say, hey, what do you think I'd really get a kick out of? I'm confused here. No, you, what, what gets you torqued is when you're in a situation where you can't choose what you want. You know, Burger King made a, a billion-dollar business out of this. Have it your way. We'll make it however you want to eat it, right? So we would think intuitively that we're the ones that call the shots as to what we want to get out of life, but you'd be dead wrong according to the Scriptures. Only the one who made you knows best your capacity for enjoyment and how to live the life that he gave you and designed for you in its fullest. So the sad part is not getting old and dying. The sad part would be getting old and dying and not know the God who made you, gave this life to you as a gift for you to enjoy, only to live it in misery and lose the opportunity. Now, you may make heaven because Christ died for you. Your salvation is not on you. It's on the back of Christ. But to waste the warm-up, the practice, that's what this is, and not to have any rewards eternally for it, that's in Scripture too. That would be sad. Solomon says, avoid that. And I know what you're thinking, especially about that part of trusting the God who made you to know what's best as far as your enjoyment. And the younger you are, probably the more you're like, yeah, well, that's, uh, you know, just your opinion, man. Right? It is an opinion. This is Solomon's opinion. Solomon was the wisest man in all the world. Yoda's smart, but he's just made up. That's Spielberg's storytelling. Solomon was real. And if you believe in the, the inerrancy of the inspired word of God, then this is legit. And the idea is either you trust this or you try to beat God at his own game. 
in running the universe. And you'll actually try to position yourself in his place. This is what happened in the garden. We'll get back to this in a minute. But you'll wind up trading gold for dirt, which Solomon hopes that we avoid. So here's the, here's the thesis for this section. End of chapter 11, beginning of chapter 12. You want to write this down? This is, this is what we're on about for today. Before it's too late, remember who made you in order to truly enjoy your life that he gave you. That's it. Before it's too late, remember who made you in order to truly enjoy the life that he has given you. So Ecclesiastes opened in chapter 1 with a poem about the cyclical patterns we see in nature, how things come around and go around. And now the book comes to an end with another poem about the universal pattern of how an individual's life comes around and goes around and specifically how it ends. So chapter 1, generations come and go. Chapter 12, we see how that happens as the young become old and return to the dust they were made from. It's this eventual return to dust that Solomon uses as the basis for his argument for encouraging youth to grab their life with both hands while the opportunity still exists. So where does he start? Look back at verse 7. He starts with one of life's simplest and most profound joys. He describes the light of the sun on your face. Now, it's been hot, so we avoid the sun, right? But what's it like when you're cold? I've grown up in Virginia and North Carolina, so we get four seasons. Uh, There's a threat that we might live in Detroit. I fought that with all I could. When it was a chance to go to college, I went to Word of Life in Florida rather than New York. I don't like being cold. I can remember sitting in the room uh, upstairs. It was, it was called the boys' room because that's where we were kept. And uh, <laughs> I, not necessarily meant to be a joke. That's, that's where we were stowed. Um, we had baseboard heat. Do you remember baseboard heat? 220 was fed to those things, and they would collect dust all year. And the first cool night of the year, you'd hear it click on, and then you'd smell that dust getting burnt off. And it was kind of a, a, a call to what's ahead. The summer's over. It's going to be getting cold. And then there's those months in the winter where a sunny day is a gift from the Lord, and you'll go outside And you'll look at the sun with your eyes shut so it doesn't burn out your retinas. But to feel the the warmth of that radiation from 93 million miles away can actually give you chill bumps. Because it's a it's a in your sensory system, it's like this is good, I want more of this. Can't wait till spring, right? That's what he's describing here. The warmth of the sun on your face. Light is sweet. It's pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. I don't know what it'd be like to live in Alaska where it's gone for half the year. Surely this is a reminder of not just what it feels like, but the one who hung the the sun as the center of our solar system. We're dependent on that light and that warmth 93 million miles away, or the planet would freeze. So the preacher's telling us again, That a good God made a good world, not only to share his goodness, but to remind you of his love and your dependence on him. 
So conversely, it would be the height of foolishness to live blind to its goodness, ignorant of its creator. To do so willingly would, would be intellectual suicide if one knew better. Uh, in 1827, there's this fellow named William Hazlitt. He's a British author. Wrote an essay attempting to capture what it feels like to be young compared with feeling old. Death and old age to the young are words without meaning. They're simply a dream, a fiction, and life is a delightful journey with no end in sight. In other words, being young feels like being unable to die. I remember when we studied this passage about how better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting and how even as a kid I knew there was a different world in the funeral home. People wanted to get out of there. I wanted to get out of there, get back to the sun that feels warm on your face, right? Even then, thinking about death, it never dawned on me that it'd be my turn one day. Death was somebody else's problem. And we're conscripted into going with mom and dad and to pay respects. I got that and I understood it. But to be young is, is not to have any reference point for these things whatsoever. And we should pay attention to the fact that the preacher does not insult or lecture the young for being young. The lesson is not you're going to be young, but you're going to be old one day, so don't forget it. It's more like you're young, so make the most of it while you can and before you know what's of true worth. It'll take you down the road to assess what's good. But if you'll trust us and learn and have wisdom now, you can have it before you learn its worth. Kind of the chicken before the egg or the horse before the cart or whatever you want to say, but that's what he's asking. So when you get to verse 9, rejoice, there's that command, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart. Sight of your eyes. That almost sounds like songs or something, doesn't it? You know, listen to your heart. It's almost as if, you know, the lost folks would, would give this a thumbs up. But then the turn. But know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. There's your warning. Um, like my daddy used to say, life's a buffet. Pick what you want. When you get to the end of the line, there's the cashier. You got to pay for it. So choose wisely, as the old knight at the end of the Indiana Jones film said, right? Be careful how you party. Even that word in our culture carries all kinds of baggage. But all the gifts God meant for your enjoyment can hurt you if you take them and walk away from him. Be careful. You'll be judged. So not to live graciously, thankfully, joyfully, drinking deep from the well of good things that God has filled to the top because of his goodness. By this time in the passage, uh, we can call that a sin. Say, wait a minute. Not enjoying something good is a sin? I thought chocolate cake was a sin. You're saying not enjoying it is a sin? It depends. You're going to need wisdom for this. But the idea of not enjoying what God gave you as a gift from him to you at a certain point becomes actually a denial of who he is and his goodness. If you want to rewind the clock all the way back to the garden, that's precisely what happened. 
you've got Adam and Eve being given everything. They're placed in paradise. And they get the idea, because of what the devil said, that God's holding out on them. That there's something that he reserves for himself that he could share with them, but he chooses not to. So that makes him a bad guy. And they're taking what he told them they couldn't have actually calls him such. It's not good. Uh, Derek Kinder describes this as the nerve that the serpent had hit in Eden as to make even paradise appear as an insult. I thought that was brilliant. Think of that. Who on the planet other than Americans can live in the, the breadbasket of the world, the lap of luxury, and then look at each other sideways because it's not fair and get in each other's business and ruin their lives in order to step over one another to get more. That'd be us. I, I heard somebody say something the other day. <laughs> made me laugh. Uh, I won't bring up the context or anything, but the, re, re, the, the comment was, nobody feels sorry for you. These are all first world problems. And that's to be in acknowledgement that the rest of the world doesn't even have these problems because they don't have the stuff that makes the problems that we get bent out of shape over. So the idea he's saying here, uh, there is a way of looking at the world that sees God's goodness and leaves us in an almost constant state of wonder at his daily provision. How could he be so good? Or there's another way to live life that feels like you're almost constantly slighted by God or other people, and it just becomes a medium for bitterness and hatred and you'll be judged for that. Don't do it. Remember your creator in the days of your youth. If we're aiming for joy, that's the idea here. It's what the message is all about. And to, and to do it before it's too late. And to do it before uh, you can't and for God's glory. I think Solomon's trying to tell us that we should start small. Start small meaning start finding joy in small things. Don't just try to be joyful for a couple of seconds. No, try to be really joyful over something really small. Because it's not likely if you can't be happy with little things that you'll be happy with big things. He's already mentioned that and, and many times. Uh, I thought this was great. It's been said by one of John Stott's study assistants. John Stott was a famous... A uh, theologian wrote many commentaries. I use him for our Acts study. One of his study assistants who knew him well, who every afternoon at 4.30 p.m. would bring him a cup of coffee, would almost always hear him say, somewhat playfully as the story goes, without looking up from his papers, I'm not worthy. And this assistant said he'd had enough of that silliness and one day ventured, it's just a cup of coffee. To which he said, my son, you don't have your doctrine of grace understood correctly. We don't deserve anything. But he said to think that this guy would be reminded of his worthiness, his creatureliness, God's greatness and his grace by a cup of coffee. I was reminded by uh, half a bowl of tapioca pudding last night after I wrote this point down that my wife made me. It's great stuff. It looks like frog eggs, but it tastes like heaven. I don't know if you like tapioca pudding. 
but I wasn't worthy of it. Neither of any of you that laugh at my pudding joke. Before we find ourselves at the other poem Ecclesiastes is known for, which is 12, 2 through 8, there's 12, verse 1, where we read the second commandment and the second warning. Remember also your creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure. So the commandment is remember your creator. So rejoicing is the first commandment. Remembering is the second commandment. Judgment is the first warning. And expiration is the second warning. And there's a reason that Solomon tells the young person here to remember your creator rather than to remember your God. I mentioned this earlier. In this, he's purposefully resting the emphasis on the creative work of God and that aspect of our relationship. The doctrine of creation has a powerful orientating nature as to the perspective of truth regarding creation's response to its creator. There's a reason why the Bible opens with the creation narrative. The first 10 words, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You buy that, the rest of the book makes sense. You reject that, the rest of the book is useless because it sets who's in charge, who's the creator and who's the creation. And then you learn for the rest of the book, his love, the creator's love for the creation who messed the place up, but he went and took his own punishment for him in his place. That's the gospel. So there's a purpose for this, a reason. David Gibson, another commentator, wonderful with this book, Ecclesiastes. He says, remembering your creator in your youth is remembering that God made a good world, not an evil one, and that we are the ones responsible for spoiling it, not he. When we get mad about old age, it should be a reminder that it's our fault. When something tragic happens in this world, we should be reminded that's not the way God designed the place to work that way. Sin is called a curse for a reason. And it's not that God is indifferent He's the one that came and bore the curse and tasted every bit of this, including death, in order that we not have to once we transition from this life under the sun into eternity forever and ever and ever and ever and ever and ever. So uh, this other fellow, Jacques Elol, he says, you may consider yourself autonomous, but you are incapable of knowing what should be done, incapable of knowing what wisdom is. You are a creature Our problems do not stem from our failure to stay in our garden. All the evils, and I choose my words carefully, all the evils of the world stem from our taking ourselves to be the creator. Why remember the creator in your youth? Because you're not the creator. And if you don't forget that, you'll be fine. If you do forget it, your life's probably a waste. Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, the section on don't be anxious about tomorrow sounds like the same stuff here because it is. We're creatures and the Creator provides for us just like He does for birds or lilies or any of those things. And we're far more important to Him than they. Bottom line, the call to remember our Creator while we are young, before we get old, is to recall, and here's David Gibson one more time, how the world was meant to be and seek to live in light of that 
before the reality of how the world actually is catches up with us and sweeps us along in the inevitable descent into old age. There's a way that God meant for this world to be. And then there's a way this world really is because of sin. And because it is the way it really is because of sin, we're really going to die. But if we can remember the way it was meant to be and can remember that because of Jesus it's going to be that way again, that will totally revolutionize the space in this world as it is under sin. I hope that makes sense. That is to live knowing who God is, who we are, how we should live before the curtain comes down and the life given by God has been taken back. Unless, of course, we belong to Jesus. So the poetic language that follows illustrates the commands and warnings. What we've had so far is the principles, but then the illustration. That's this poem. No one will likely ever turn this poem into a song. I'm pretty sure of it. I told someone in the hall a while ago, maybe Weird Al will make one. But it would be a joke, not for serious. Uh, it'll never likely be forgotten because you hear a lot of secular folks speak of these things. It's meant to contrast with 11.7 where we talked about the warmth of the sun on our face. Contrast that with things going dark in verse 2. The whole bit is designed to paint the picture of the unmaking of creation as the good and right order of things as they were purposed are reversed. This is where we understand the full weight of if you eat of the fruit in the day that you eat thereof you will surely die but we walk around as young people thinking that is the joke it's not a joke it's for real it just happens slowly everything that God put into place when he breathed into nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul time and age reverse that process back to dust it begins in verse 2 with a description of gathering clouds All the light givers, the sun, the moon, the stars are extinguished. And instead of the sky clearing after the rain, there's only more clouds. Kind of like this morning, but we've we've actually got the sun shining again. In this case, the story, there's no sun. It describes the general desolation of old age. Not only may the lights of the faculties and senses fade, but also the warm glow of old friends... Familiar places, dreams, memories. Age steals each one of these things away. That's, that's the picturing of these gathering clouds, and the clouds don't stop. There's more rain after those clouds. Uh, kinder, once more. In one's early years and the greater part of one's life, troubles and illnesses are chiefly setbacks, not disasters. One expects the sky to clear eventually. And when you're young, you have time to wait it out. But when you're old, you may suffer one trouble right after another with little time to recover until there is no recovery. Verse 3 uses the image of a crumbling house that's falling apart. Verses 3 through 5, actually. Powerful collection of metaphors and allusions, taking things we know from the real world, but using them as a way to describe what happens to our earthly temple. The keepers of the house are one's hands, They used to be strong and capable of providing, even defending. But now they tremble and shake 
no longer sure and steady. The strong men that have carried the old man's body are his legs. That's next. Now they can hardly carry his own weight anymore or bent as a result. Uh, the grinders, most everybody gets this correct. That's teeth. Um, there aren't as many as there used to be because there weren't as many dentists. There weren't crowns. There weren't plates. There weren't dentures. Something as simple as chewing food becomes a chore. The windows are his eyes. The doors are his ears. Things are darker. Things are quieter. Rising up at the sound of the bird means sleeping lightly and stirring early. There's a reason why Bojangles is full in the mornings. It's a good thing. The daughters of song are brought low. Means that the old man cannot sing anymore, not like he used to. Even old blue eyes didn't hit those notes he used to hit when he'd go back to the same places and sing the same songs. Uh, they're afraid also of what is high and terrors are in the way. That means he's afraid of falling and it's just safer to stay home. There, there's, there's variables, X factors. There ain't a week that goes by in our house where one of our four kids doesn't do something that gets them scraped or bruised or, or, or scabbed. We kind of laugh at that stuff. Um, Y'all remember that Sunday I came in wearing a cast, don't you? Riding on that goofy one wheel. If, you, if anybody had ever got that on tape, it would have been the most ridiculous looking non-tragic accident ever. It just foot slipped off, trip, tried to run out the trip, caught myself with my left hand. Two hours later at dinner with company, I say, I think this is a problem. It looked like a walnut up under my skin here. Two places. I think it's the first time I ever broke anything. Um, that could be deadly to people twice my age. It's fun for people half my age. That's the difference we're talking about. He's very good in his, 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 his imagery here. Um, I remember when my daddy sold his Harley. Now, if anybody asked, he would say, I'm tired of worrying about the crazies on the road. What he really meant was, I'm not sure of myself around those crazies on the road. Now, when, when you're young, the more crazies, the better. You get points for weaving through all that, right? It's a challenge. I remember when he sold his Mustang. That was later. It was low to the ground and hard to see out of. So there's a time where he wasn't comfortable with it. I remember when mom took his license. Right about now, he's looking at my mom and saying, I knew it was you. <laughs> but, but even he knows that it's not safe anymore. As hard as that sounds, and not just for him, but the whole family, that day's gone. We don't get it back. Uh, this stuff is painful reading through. Um, 
The almond tree blossoms are white. That refers to white hair. A grasshopper is the embodiment of agility, but if you find one dragging itself along and its wings are all frazzled at the end, it used to keep bees, and you could tell when the bees were older. And they didn't live but about a month. This is describing the, the failure of, of desire as well. The last one is unique to Hebrew culture. It talks about a, a, a certain thing they would eat to stimulate appetite. He's saying that doesn't even work. The desire for food is gone. So he eats little, begins to lose weight. It's just the opposite, right? When you're, when you're a baby, you talk about gaining weight. When you're older, you lose it. And why? He says, because man is going to his eternal home. And then verse 6 describes the end. Before, this is all a warning about enjoying your life, remembering your creator. Before what? Before the silver cord is snapped or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the cistern. So that the cord's one thing, the other three are kind of saying the same thing three ways, but it's meant to suggest a thing of immense value hanging from an elegant but tiny thread, which is very precarious, fragile, there's risk of damage. And once that thread breaks, the thing of value is broken beyond repair. Now, I've never had a golden bowl or a cistern or a pitcher shattered at a fountain. You know, they're talking about what they knew in their day. Uh, when we were clearing land back at the old place in Virginia, we came across what would have been someone's trash pile a long time ago. You love to find that in the yard, don't you? You're grading down. You think you've got it about right. Nope, you got about six feet worth of garbage. But in among that stuff, there was old jars, old uh, Coke bottles. I don't know about y'all, but I always want to think, who bought this bottle? Who drank this Coke? Uh, did they throw it here, or was that somebody else later? Or those jars, what did they keep inside? It's blue glass, you know, that's a lot older. There's brown glass, there's white glass, green glass. But whatever's, whatever happened and whoever had it, it's broken now. You can't reuse it. You wouldn't even put seashells in that and stick it on a shelf like it's cool to do now in an old jar because the jar's broke and you can't fix a broken jar. The super glued jar doesn't work right. I remember trying to super glue a coffee mug I broke when I was little. Coffee undoes the super glue. Um, and if it's the handle, don't even think about it because the, the heavy, hot part is the part's going to fall off. When it's broken, it's broken. And what he means is verse 7, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the Spirit returns to God who gave it. We used to say that. I wonder if anybody in this building has ever said as a young person throwing their bottle out the window, which is littering, back to nature. Let that glass get busted up and turned into sand again, dust to dust. That's a jerk thing to say, isn't it? Anybody? No? Just your pastor. It's all right. You can tell me later. All of these things are taken for granted in one's youth. 
Case in point, it's only when we're forced to do without our faculties that we even take notice that they're gone. So before this happens, and it will, what is God asking of you? Well, he's asking you to rejoice, but he's asking you to remember. Remember like you would your social security number or your multiplication tables? No. That's just in your pocket for if you need it one day. This is remember something as if it is integral to your entire existence. Remember this sermon from August 21st, 2022? No. Unless, of course, you're talking about the actual words of God we're talking about. Make no mistake, you should never forget uh, the word of the Lord delivered to Wake Chapel this morning that commands you to remember your Creator and rejoice in what He gives you while you have the chance to do it. That's non-negotiable. Those are commands. We'll be judged for that. question is, have you done it? I failed to mention that the Bible is very generous with this youth definition. If you want a good proof text, when Paul writes to Timothy and tells him, don't let anyone despise your youth. You know how old Timothy was? Older than me. In his, his mid-40s. I'm encroaching on mid-40s. I'm 40-something. You get 40-something at, at 41, right? You say you're 40 for a year. And 40-something for like almost a decade. But to think about that. Have you done this? Will you do this? And it's going to amount to a large risked investment of trust in an older generation to tell you the truth. It doesn't serve the youth very well for the older generation to complain all the time. And we kind of forgive men for doing that for some reason. Like we make movies about grumpy old men and laugh at them. And it's entertaining at the barber shop, right? We don't put up with that as much from women, though they have more to legitimately complain about. The old Scrooge that they live with or whatever. <laughs> the idea here is that the trust of wisdom is with the older group. And the burden of living one's life well comes from the youth recognizing and applying that wisdom talked about casting your bread on the waters and the usefulness of a good church where Titus 2 comes in. Older men bringing up younger men. Older women bringing up younger women and how that's indispensable. It's absolutely true. But we're going to have to trust the wisdom in this room for our guidance. Um, when I was little, I had to trust my dad that it would be all right to jump into the pool where he was, that I wouldn't drown. He took care of me. I had to trust him when he would say when I was younger, there's certain stuff you're going to need to stay away from. That right there is a, a dead-end road. Uh, that guy's not a good friend. I'm sure you enjoy being around him, but y'all don't bring out the best in each other. That girl, we had dreams of you and being married, son, but she was not in any of those dreams. A young person's going to have to trust that that's wisdom, be it your father, your mother, or, or anyone else, maybe a father or mother in Christ. And I don't know about you, but 
this is tough for me. This message out of all of them. Um, I've enjoyed walking through this with you all this summer. It's, it's been really good. But this one hits home because I can look down at my family at home and I can look back to my parents in Virginia, um, which just seems to make the clock go faster, you know? I, this job is no different than any of your jobs. You, you've got about a third of it to work and about a third of your day to spend with your family, about a third of your day to sleep. Usually we rob the last two because of the urgency of, of making a living. And the phone rings off the hook and the messages are incessant and the email gets buried and we live with a sense of guilt because there's more that we've left neglected as far as that job goes than we've actually executed. I get all that. But once you get to about the middle of the game, you start thinking about stuff and it's, it's, it's no small group of people that have uh, written extensively about life in seasons, right? If you got 80 years, that's, that's on the generous side, but four seasons of 20 years, right? My children are enjoying the springtime. Uh, Olivia's closer to summer than Ben is. My wife is enjoying the latter stages of summer. I'm in early fall, which is my favorite time of the year anyway. <laughs> my parents are in the middle to late winter, and they live in another state. And the word conflicted is probably an easy term for the state of my soul some weeks when I can only be one place at one time, and only I can answer the question, where am I supposed to be? This isn't easy. And what's tough about this book of Ecclesiastes, until we get to the end where the narrator comes in and gives us the punchline, Solomon's happy to just leave it on that horrible note with the broken cistern, the thread had snapped. Back to dust. Game is over. But just as God made every person, here's our wrap-up. At the end, in old age and in death, that he promised because of sin, every person is unmade. But that's not all. We have a New Testament, don't we? If you belong to Jesus, that Galilean carpenter who rose from the dead the morning of the third day, because death had no claim on him, as he had never sinned, if you belong to Jesus, death has no claim on you either. It's been paid for. Because you're in Christ, it doesn't have any more claim on you than it had on him. And where this life under the sun is over, our death here in this life only ushers in the beginning of our eternity. What will have amounted to only our practice run is complete. And all that because of the goodness and grace of God who appeared and saved you out of the darkness for his eternal glory. If I'm not worthy of a cup of coffee or tapioca pudding, why in the world does God save anyone? We struggle over the question, why does he choose to save people that way? Why can't there be more than one way? Why is there any way? 
It is he who's able to keep you from stumbling, to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to grab the life he gave you as a gift with both hands and to enjoy it to the fullest as he designed for his glory and your enjoyment. He'll present you faultless before the presence of his glory with great joy, which is even more an amazing thing that we wake up every morning because of him saved. If, 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 if it counted on me to wake up this morning saved, this is referring to a John Piper message, or it was counted on me to love my wife or to love my children or to not wreck myself such as to ruin this uh, calling or your ministry, then the ministry would be ruined. I would have left my wife. I'd have hated my children. I don't have any of that in me. All that died when I was born into sin. I've been dead in my trespasses. And until Jesus decided on Cinco de Mayo of 1997 to stir my soul, wake it up to the tragedy of reality, only to forgive my sins and give me his righteousness, I wouldn't have any of this to talk about. So, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now, and forevermore. Amen. You know that verse. It concludes with an amen. A so be it. It's a doxology. It's the end of the book of Jude. And a doxology, the way they work, is you ascribe all the qualities to the person who's capable of doing the thing that you're shocked and amazed about. That God would gift us under the sun. That God would save us under the sun. That God would want to spend eternity with us forever. Present us like himself to his father at the end when this is over. Ascribe to him all the good stuff that makes that happen. Glory, dominion, power. When? When's it in force? What's the scope? Forever and ever. Amen. So I don't know where you are on that spectrum of life as we've been given it. But part of the reminder and part of the difficulty in this with me and my family and the situation we now live, the way in which God has chosen to gift your pastor is through a set of loving parents who all my life raising me made much of Jesus such that either by compulsion, their guidance, even tough love at times, they made me remember my creator in my youth. I'm amazed at him in my midlife. And I hope when I'm old, the house that he's given me is built correctly, full of memories, so that when things get dark and quiet and shaky and feeble, I've only got good things to remember. Not bad experiences, misbehavior, and sin to haunt me and the devil to use it to tell me I'm worthless. Christ certainly wouldn't have died for me. You see, that's the part he, he alludes to, but he's not. That's part of the warning. You'll live in that house you built until it's gone. So build it wisely. Remember your creator and rejoice in his gifts. With that said, let's us pray. Father in heaven.
We've been long at your word this morning, but Lord, it's deep. It's sobering. It's true. It's comforting. But there are there are legitimate rebukes. Lord, there's 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 righteous conviction. Our time is running out. The word used over and over and over again is a vapor. The merest of breaths. We're kidding ourselves if we think we've got much left at all. So Lord, would you shine on our face like the warmth of the sun. Give us your gifts. Never let us forget you. Until the day we see you face to face. And we are known even as also we've been known. No more glass darkly. Face to face. And Lord for those who need encouragement. Who may not be at the end but feel that way. Lord remind us that you who keep our tears in your bottle. And keep track of our tossings through the night. Will preserve every precious memory to be enjoyed forever and ever in your glory together. If these days that we're living don't look to amount to much, may we be encouraged for you ordained that we live them. Lord, may you be God and may we be quiet. We ask this in your name. Amen.